Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Duck Calls podcast. Uh, in our in line with our kind of semi semi periodic uh, podcasts on contemporary events, I wanted to speak to a couple experts on uh, Germany and Germany's kind of rapidly reorienting place in Europe, all in the context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And so today, I'm very fortunate to have Georg Lofelman, who is an assistant professor of war studies at Warwick University or University of Warwick, which is it? Do they care? Uh, they don't really care, no. I think, yeah, right. both is fine. And uh, uh, Frank Stengel, who is a lecturer in sociology. Is that right, Frank? Yeah. All right. At Kiel University in Germany. All right. So welcome to both of you. Thank you very much for making the time to come on the podcast to talk to us about, you know, uh, what the Chinese would say, interesting times, right? So, um, you know, let's start with a conversation about what's going on in Germany, because it seems that, you know, there was this initial kind of Olaf Scholz said, we're we're doing an about face in German foreign mm. policy and, and, you know, sort of the legacy of Ostpolitik is, if not dead, it's on life support and we're going to be more assertive. And there was talk about uh, increasing German defense spending to the NATO 2% and mm. this 100 billion euro slush fund for the Bundeswehr and all these sorts of big changes in, in German foreign policy. And then there seems to be a lot of quiescence or mm. uh, something. It seems to have gone quiet since then. So I wonder if you two might talk about, give us a little bit of context. What, how significant were these changes that Schultz kind of laid out in the initial mm. weeks or so after the invasion took place? What's happened since then? you know, is this revolution in German foreign policy really taking place or is it, was it a lot of discussion and then we have a return to the status quo ante? What's going on? Okay, so um, Schultz on the 27th of February gave a speech in the Bundestag in the German parliament where he talked about a Zeitenwende, like a historic turning point for German foreign security policy in response to the Russian war of aggression in Ukraine. And when we look to the word like Wende, that's quite a significant phrase because Wende in German really indicates that there is now something structural that is changing, right? So German reunification, the run up to between the fall of the Berlin Wall and reunifications between the 9th of November of 1989 and the 3rd of October 1990 is, is known as the Wendet side, the side of the turn, the time of the turnaround. Then when Germany phased out nuclear power, it was known as the Energiewende, the energy uh, turnaround. And so rhetorically and narratively, Schultz really sort of indicated that this would be a watershed for, for German foreign and security policy. And the most important manifestations of that was this 100 billion special investment fund for the Bundeswehr that Germany now would fulfill this 2% um, target. And it also sort of like breaks in particular with what I would call the Merkel doctrine, right? Merkel, when she was chancellor, had a disinterest in the military that I think bordered on almost open disdain. 
Um, under her chancellorship, the Bundeswehr was cut back, it was reduced, conscription was phased out, uh, all to save money. There was never a larger strategic or security rationale here. And at the same time, Germany, in terms of its foreign policy, had an Eastern orientation that absolutely prioritized economic engagement, diplomatic engagement with Russia, which resulted in us becoming gas dependent on Russia for 50% of our natural gas imports. And all of that, Scholz essentially said, is no, long, no longer sustainable. We actually need a capable military that can deter Russian aggression also because of our NATO commitments and we need to get away from this energy dependency. And the third point is that we will no longer consider sending weapons to an um, active conflict area as a taboo. So we will supply Panzerfaust three anti-tank missiles. Um, however, ever since this announcement on the 27th, um, the German political apparatus has somewhat stalled, and in particular, this has been shown in this whole issue around sending heavy weapons to Ukraine, right? Sending artillery, sending tanks. So the Czechs, for example, they started sending T-72 Soviet-era models from their own arsenals. The UK, the US also announced sending 155 millimeter howitzers, so heavy artillery. But Germany hasn't. And there we need to account for a couple of things politically, domestically in, the U in, in Germany, in particular the SPD, which has a strong pacifist wing on the one side um, that is very hesitant to consider military power as an element of international politics and a orientation toward Russia, Ostpolitik, ever since Willy Brandt. Um, and Egon Barr that essentially sees that our main focus toward Eastern Europe should be Moscow, not Warsaw or, for example, Ukraine. And so this rhetorical or narrative announcement is now bumping up against some very deeply ingrained uh, elements of German political culture, strategic culture, and also the political culture of the SPD. Maybe that for a little bit of an, of an opening. All right, Frank, what do you, where do you want to come off of that? Yeah. Um, first of all, thanks, Georg, for the for the great um, uh, starting point here. Um, I agree with most of that. Um, I would add a little bit that part of this perceived hesitancy that uh, also um, frustrates observers like Georg and, and me is is also Olaf Scholz, right? Um, Olaf Scholz is and his communication style in particular, right? Um, he is somebody who has long been uh, uh, in various positions in the SPD um, and who has been a politician in Hamburg, uh, mayor of Hamburg, uh, and who in Hamburg had sort of a nickname, which was called the Scholzomat, um, like a, a sort of a, um, a mix between his surname and uh, the German word for automaton. Um, because he, because of his style, basically, and his sort of very specific way to give interviews, and sort of, um, it, it seems at least from from press reports that he takes pride in throwing journalists off their game um, by doing various things, giving very short answers. Um, so that no real dialogue evolves, um, or not answering at all in the very least um, uh, what has been asked, um, or somehow irony, things like that. Um, and he is really, even for German politicians, he's very notorious in terms of 
not responding and um, not giving um, yes or no answers. Um, and part of that is uh, probably his experience as general secretary of the SPD and some experiences from what I've read uh, in, in newspapers um, with things he said that then came back to bite him in the behind. And, and he's really um, developed a very extreme style in not responding. And this is precisely what we're seeing, right? Um, he, um, he gets under pressure um, and, uh, and then he goes in front of the cameras to sort of explain what's going on. And in the end, nobody understands whether we're delivering now heavy weapons or not, um, because simply by way of his talking style, nobody understands what he wants to say. And because apparently it's so deeply ingrained in his habitus um, not to say anything that could ever be contradicted um, by evidence um, that he simply does, says nothing. Um, right. And this is a big part um, why um, the perception of uh, the German government dragging their feet, being not being active and so on, uh, why this perception is so strong, in my opinion. And if you contrast this, for instance, with the minister um, of the, for the economy, Robert Habeck, um, who who you know, posts on Twitter very short, very clear, spot on messages on what they're doing and why you can there is, you at least have to qualify what the government as a whole is doing with this, because he, um, he, for instance, explained the steps exactly they're doing to reduce oil and gas dependence from Russia, how much percent they've already achieved, and, and puts this in a larger narrative of explaining um, there are two things we could do. Uh, either we say we're boycotting Russia now and then see whether our economy implodes, um, or whether we try to reduce our dependence to make it actually possible that we could do this without risk, right? So he's the exact opposite in terms of communication style of Scholz. And, uh, and because this, this, um, this whole heavy weapon thing was mainly with the chancellery, um, I think this also contributed to that aside from the actual content of what's going on. Um, so that's, I think, important to keep in mind. And that big of this is catastrophic communication. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sorry to say this, this strongly, but it's really awful. Just the communication is just very bad. Um, yeah, would, do you want to add on that? I would, I would just second that like 100%. Um, Schultz is is super obtuse. Not only does he not explain what he doesn't do, he also doesn't explain really what he does do. Um, and what we also find is that over the recent weeks, Schultz has sort of rescinded one red line after another. First, it was, we don't send heavy weapons. Then it was, okay, we can send heavy weapons, but we only send martyr infantry fighting vehicles and Fuchs armor personnel characters to, to Slovenia, and then the Slovenians will send their Soviet-era stuff to Ukraine. Then it was, well, we can't send heavy weapons directly to Ukraine. It takes too long to train Ukrainian crews on our super sophisticated German-made weaponry. Then a couple of days ago at this international conference in Rammstein under U.S. Um, tutelage, all of a sudden we announced we're going to send 50 Gephardt anti-aircraft um, self-propelled guns, which is essentially the most complex thing that used to be in the arsenal of the Bundeswehr. It's yeah. basically like a radar system with a computer on a tank chassis. So in the Bundeswehr, it took about five months to train, uh, to train crews on that thing. 
And so what you see is that this domestic pressure and this international pressure essentially forces Scholz to go further and further beyond what his own party is essentially comfortable with. And this is also where the communication of the FDP, the liberal sort of uh, business um, liberal centrist party and the Greens, they're communicating much more forcefully. And partially, I think this is also a bit of a generational divide. So Baerbock, for example, the foreign minister, and Habeck, the minister for energy and the economy, they're Gen Xers. And Schultz and Lambrecht are kind of like from the sort of like old Bonn Republic boomer style of communication where you bury yourself in the, in the files and in the filing cabinets, but really developing a narrative, emotive language, mobilizing effect, um, all of that was essentially anathema, was almost a taboo in German politics. And so we're also seeing a little bit like a new generation of German politicians, which further away from the Third Reich and where, you know, everything to do with charisma has sort of been shunned in German politics. I think these taboos are starting to loosen a little bit. And we also find younger politicians, they are arguing on a more emphatic level, on a more uh, effective level. But that is not Scholz and that is not, for example, Christine Lambrecht, the, the Minister of Defense. So we could be seeing this turning point actually taking place, but because Schultz is such a bad communicator, outside observers can't really see it. And within the domestic politics of the governing coalition, Schultz is being pushed by his coalition partners, mm -hmm. maybe in directions that he, because of his roots in the SPD, might not otherwise go. Is that are all those kind of fair summaries of what you guys have said? Yeah, I mean, I I see a pattern here that plays out repeatedly, right? So, for example, when it came to sending anti-tank missiles, right? Britain and the U.S. already sent javelins and Anlaw anti-tank missiles to Ukraine before the war broke out, and it's probably only thanks to those missiles that, for example, Kiev is actually still under Ukrainian control. Then the war breaks out. Then three days later, Scholz announces, now we're also going to send weapons, right? But we're always one step behind, let's say, the, those powers or those countries that are the most forward. Because German strategic culture is informed by two, I would say, main themes. The one is multilateralism, never Germany alone. Um, because that is sort of our ur trauma, also from two world wars, right? where it's always like coalitions that formed against Germany. So one of the lessons from that was we never want to be isolated again on the world stage. But the other sort of historic strategic narrative is military reticence, um, which sometimes is sort of, oh, Germany is a pacifist country, which... I don't think it's necessarily pacifism because Germany had a very capable military all throughout the Cold War in West Germany. But it is sort of an attitude that doesn't really see military power, military force as a credible political instrument. So Germany predominantly sees itself in matters of multilateralism, diplomacy, and economic power, geoeconomics. Now, all of that is all of the window because all of a sudden it's all about fighting a war, winning a war, weapons, weapons, weapons. And the entire German political culture and system, particularly the SPD, they're really quite uncomfortable with all of that because it pretty much questions all of their deeply held assumptions about how international politics works or how it should work. And so 
the the practical requirements of Germany also as part of what we call the West or part of NATO is now kind of like bumping up against, yeah, this is not about, you know, negotiations at all costs, which was basically always our mantra. There was Merkel in Minsk too. The Ukrainians always hated Minsk too, pretty much, because Merkel essentially negotiated with the Russians uh, above uh, the heads of the Ukrainian, right? And now the sort of mantra of diplomacy at all costs is coming to an end. And some parties have less a problem with that. The Greens, for example, which have always more emphasized human rights, they've always been more critical of Putin and his dictatorship and his autocracy. And the SPD, which invested very, very heavily in that relationship with Russia, and they are now looking essentially at the debris of their foreign policy legacy of the 50 years, which pretty much has been blown to smithereens by the Russians with their attack on, on Ukraine. I agree with that, obviously. Um, I think it's I think it's a really important point uh, that Georg makes uh, in regards to this long tradition in the SPD towards what in the 80s was still called cooperative security, like Egon Barr uh, and, and these guys who said, you know, we need to get out of this Cold War zero-sum logic, um, right? So, so this is not just something that happened, you know, after unification, after the end of the Cold War, but it, it, it goes a good deal back uh, further. And um, and also the second point I think is really important, that this talk about pacifism is, in my opinion, complete nonsense, right? Because, um, because Germany was never really a pacifist country, um, right? Since 1955, maybe between 1945 and 1955, maybe. Um, but the elites, definitely not, um, because Adenauer was in favor uh, of rearmament to regain sovereignty and to sort of become an equal um, partner uh, for uh, for other states. Um, and in 1955, um, uh, Germany rearmed itself uh, within the alliance, obviously very hedged, right? Um, um, and um, with not even a clear um, independent command structure and, and so on and so forth. Um, but at the same time, we don't really have sort of a broad societal opposition to the military as such. Indeed, the Bundeswehr is one of the institutions that has the most trust in Germany and has had for decades, right? So it's really important, like Georg said, to distinguish here between pacifism, which like violence is never a solution under any circumstances, um, and anti-militarism, um, uh, because in, in the 80s, we Germany had huge tank forces, right? And the difference was just that it was um, conventional deterrence and uh, 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 a national and alliance defense on German soil. And the idea was to prevent a war from ever occurring, but still, um, it's not like um, during the Cold War, they were just training to to dig wells, um, right? Um, and, and this is important to, to, to keep in mind. Um, and now, if, if you don't mind, I would like to get back to the second part of your first question to some extent, um, and uh, namely, to what extent is this really a watershed? And um, Georg and I have debated this on Twitter, also with others, um, because um, I, I was, from the beginning, I was thinking this is, there's not much happening here. Uh, and uh, and Georg was, eh, something might, might be happening here. And, um, and it's still in it's sort of unclear what this means. And part of that, in my opinion, is because we can distinguish different levels of what's happening. 
Um, right, the first thing is policy. Um, and also we have two elements of policy. The first thing is this reinvestment in the armed forces. Uh, and that for me is just a return to the Cold War at which point we already had this strategic culture um, that Georg uh, lined out for us, right? So this is not a major shift. It just means that they've stopped um, dismantling the Bundeswehr. Uh, and even to what extent this is actually the case with the investment they're planning, even that we're not really sure whether that might be enough, right? Because they have such high personnel costs. It's still not fixed in the budget uh, per annum, as far as I know. So eh, we'll have to see what actually happens, um, right? So, but in terms of um, culture and so on, it's only a step back to what best case, most that can happen, it's a step back to pre-1990. The second thing is, um, is arms exports. And here often we also hear that um, this is completely new and the taboo has been broken. And as far as I know, that's also not the case because Germany has in fact um, exported weapons also to crisis regions. So there's also really not that much of a taboo here, um, right? Uh, at least in terms of who something happened, everything changed. The on the policy level, there is no indication, even if we send heavy weapons, um, there's no indication that that Germany is normalizing or something like that, at least for me. So I'm skeptical. Um, and, uh, and, and let me just say one more thing. And this is the last thing. And Georg, uh, I'm already seeing that you want to respond to, uh, that, you want to, respond to that. Um, and theoretically, I, I come from a post-structuralist perspective, right? Uh, and here I... Um, if you come from a conventional constructivist perspective, you would say you've got cultures and ideation factors and they're rather stable and they kind of limit what policymakers can do um, because they internalize these factors uh, and that informs sort of the logic of appropriateness, right? So if you internalize anti-militarism, you yourself will think it's a bad idea to become involved militarily somewhere else, um, independent of whether this might work. Um, and, and the model of change in this conventional constructivist scholarship, which is really not very complex, uh, is that, that there's a linear change, that reality out there is putting pressure on people who then adapt their culture. I'm leaving aside that this is theoretically completely inconsistent because, you know, if you're a constructivist, how can reality as such, unmediated, unconstructed, put pressure on something? Complete nonsense, if you ask me, but hey, um, <laughs> moving on. Um, the thing is, um, um, what we see is that there's no linear change, but that at every point where something comes up, there's a renegotiation and reinterpretation and discursive struggles over this. And that's why we don't have a, a linear development of, uh, say, anti-militarism weakening and multilateralism getting stronger, but a back and forth. Um, saying, yes to to, saying yes to Bosnia. Bosnia, actually, were the first airstrikes, not Kosovo. Um, by the way, at least according to Volker Rühe, the former defense minister, then we have Kosovo. Then we have Afghanistan, which seems like something's weakening. And then suddenly Schröder says no on Iraq. So there's a move completely back in the other direction. Then we have, you know, further engagement in Afghanistan. Then we have Libya. Suddenly there's a, you know, 
a move back. So it's a back and forth. And the reason for that is, I would say, that theoretically, there are discursive struggles and people keep fighting over what exactly it means to be interminatorist, what it means to be multilateralist, what it means, third element, I would say, or two and a half element, what it means never to have Auschwitz again, um, right? And they keep fighting over this. And that is why it's not a linear development. And I'm going to stop here now and then Georg can say why this is so wrong. No, just um, well, what Frank said about, you know, is it exciting when, is it really such a dramatic turnaround? I mean, for example, on that weapons export thing, this is absolutely right. We have sent weapons into conflict areas. During the fight against the Islamic State, Germany under Merkel provided the Peshmerga, the, the Kurdish militias, with thousands of G36 assault rifles and Panzerfaust anti-tank weapons, right? So to, to claim that like this has never actually occurred before is actually historically outright uh, outright false. And also when we think of, you know, yeah, sort of like reinvesting in the military, I would say it is exactly that. It's a reinvestment yeah, throughout the Cold War. Then what was West Germany spent between two and three percent of its GDP on defense. The Bundeswehr today has 180,000 soldiers and I think something like 300 main battle tanks. During the Cold War, the Bundeswehr had 500,000 men 12 army divisions and fielded about 7,000 tanks and armored vehicles. It was the conventional backbone of NATO. It was a massive force that was regarded as, you know, by some NATO, uh, by some Cold War historians, like General Louis Geddes, he said it was probably the best army in NATO. So this idea that, that Germany was sort of this kind of like feckless, semi-impotent country that always relied on the U.S., it's a little bit of a historical distortion because what we did was basically we bought our way back into the table as a sovereign country, uh, as Frank said, uh, respected in the international community and investor community by basically saying, yeah, we're going we're gonna to buy in, we're going to defend Western Europe, which at that point meant right West Germany because... Um, the idea was if the Warsaw Pact ever gets through, uh, we're going to like try to basically stop them at, at the very least at the Rhine. And then, of course, reunification happens, right? Soviet Union collapses, the Warsaw Pact dispenses, and then Germany says, oh, now comes the peace dividend. We don't need these massive armored formations anymore, and we're going to completely retool the armed forces. So this massive territorial army that was essentially geared for one thing and one thing only, uh, which was essentially World War III and deterring uh, a conventional attack by the, by the Russians, uh, was then, okay, we are basically going to uh, participate in peacekeeping, peace enforcement operations, Bosnia, Kosovo, Afghanistan. But those were never really genuine strategic concerns of Germany. We went into Afghanistan out of alliance solidarity with the US and we went into Mali out of sort of our strategic partnership with France. But as a country that did not have a massive colonial empire, um, even at the height of, of German imperialism, this sort of like interventionist mindset is not particularly a genuine German uh, concern. So what we are seeing now, Germany re-emphasizing its role in, for example, leading a multinational battalion in Lithuania, providing troops for NATO's very high joint readiness task force at VJTF. This is sort of this old mantra of we can't fight so we don't have to fight. So I would agree with Frank Frank there that it's kind of like more of a return of what Germany's 
defense and security posture used to be with the added caveat where I think there is a bit of a difference now. We are literally sending weapons like the Gepard Panzerfaust III into Ukraine with the specific purpose to kill Russians. And that, given sort of like a deeply ingrained historical guilt complex in Germany for the invasion of the Soviet Union, Operation Barbarossa, the war crimes, the Holocaust, there I do see a bit of a historic watershed that we're actually saying never again does not mean never again war fought with German participation or German weapons, but never again means never again of war of, of aggression, never again a genocidal war, never again will we allow a tyrannical regime to, vic to victimize a weaker neighboring country. And there I would say that we do have a Zeitenwende conceptually and also ideologically. This prompts, I mean, this observation by both of you that uh, the, in policy terms, you really, what we're seeing is mostly a return to the Cold War policy position, more or less, right? Um, the, then the, that prompts the question from me, why is uh, Schultz using this language of Zeitenwender, right? What, what's, if, if, if there's not really a Zeitenwender going on, then what's the value of that language? Is it an inter I mean, it's not going to, the significance of that is going to be lost on international audiences, right? If you ask an American, what's your perspective of Germany in NATO now, you're unlikely to get much, to answer much different from what it was before the Russian invasion, right? So I think my read on this is that this is for domestic political consumption. Now it might be for the elites or it might be for mm. the general public. But what's the value of this language in the German context then? I, I think what the value is, is that you actually bring the military dimension back into the conversation as a legitimate tool of German foreign policy. Because when we think to, over the last 20 years, the military has sort of been seen as one German president, uh, Horst Kühler, said that Germans look at the uh, military with a mild disinterest. Um, it's sort of seen as a necessary evil at best. And I talked to a German colonel who said it was uh, benevolent neglect. Benevolent neglect, right. exactly that. So right, we like the Bundeswehr when there is flooding in the at the in, in the Rhine or on the Oder, and they they bring the the, the sandbags and the helicopters. Or when we're on a mission in, in Mali and we dig wells and we do this sort of like kind of like armed development aid. But the core business of a military to fight, to kill, to essentially use violence in order to impose our political will on our opponent to speak with Clausewitz, that has pretty much completely been shunned both politically and intellectually in Germany. And so where I do see at Zeitenwende, it is a little bit in that, that we actually need to engage intellectually again with the military, with the military dimension of international politics, with hard power, with ideas around strategy. And this is a bit of a pet peeve for me, for example. But um, when we talk about security studies, the academic research into international security, 
in Germany, it does not have the same reputational acceptance as in what we call the Anglo-Saxon academic environment, for example. There are absolutely, there is absolutely expertise in Germany, uh, peace studies, conflict studies, security studies, but by and large, this idea of the military, of thinking in military categories and thinking in, in, in war as a political tool has um, been, I would say, neglected, has been somewhat of actively shunned. And there we're seeing now a little bit that, oh, the idea that if we engage economically with authoritarian powers like China and Russia, and then somehow we're going to change them, um, this has been exposed now as naive um, at best, and actually, uh, at the worst, uh, actively contributing to uh, imperialist expansion and wars of aggression. I mean, we are paying for Russia's war with our gas imports, and there's just no two ways about that. So, you know, if the SPD you know, says, oh, it's it's unfair to, like, you know, look at this, I'm like, yeah, guys, you've been lied to by Putin. I'm sorry, where were you when the Russians were bombing hospitals in, in Syria? Where were you when the annexed Crimea? Where, when the, where were you when they rolled into Georgia in 2008? This idea that he sort of like duped us. Uh, no, we just didn't want to see it because we had this really nice, cozy relationship that was essentially, uh, you know, built on the suffering of others. And we just thought, oh, yeah, you know, Ukraine, that's kind of like not really a country anyway, is it? And the German left, the German pacifist left, um, I think has been exposed for a quite moral bankruptcy over this whole uh, affair. And interestingly, defense manufacturers like Rheinmetall and Kraus Maffei Wegmann are now the defenders of freedom and liberty in Europe. And um, famous German, you know, left intellectuals like Emma, uh, Emma editor Alice Schwarzer and others have basically nothing to say to the Ukrainians, but, oh, you're fighting back? How archaic of you. We wish you would surrender so all of this could go away, which for me uh, shows a bit the moral decay and quite frankly, the rot at a lot of this uh, debate. We are sitting under the umbrella of American security guarantees and nuclear weapons. And, you know, Ukraine, well, tough. I guess you shouldn't have been next door to Russia. Yeah, so there you're alluding to this uh, open letter, right, from yeah. uh, intellectuals and artists in in the publication Emma basically arguing that Germany uh, really doesn't shouldn't be involved. Is that is yeah, that absolutely great, Frank? What do you think? Yeah, um, I, I I think I agree with most of what Georg said. In the end, I I'm not sure I would condemn um, the left and the peace movement as a whole as much, uh, but certainly there are large elements that. Uh, are are not exactly coming to grips with what's going on here and uh, i would completely agree that at least these parts they there is a moral bankruptcy here obviously um as for the zeitenmender and 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 for the use of the language um i also think that that it it, it kind of gives scholz the opportunity to say well this is not my decision um, this is something imposed upon me by radically changed circumstances, um, right? Um, and this is very, very common, obviously, among all politicians, and it's certainly very, very common among German politicians in security policy. If you look at um, 
uh, uh, look at out of area operations of uh, military operations outside the NATO area. The argument here has always been there is not really a choice. Um, and uh, although uh, Georg is right, saying that um, Afghanistan was mainly about alliance solidarity, it, we also have the argument um, with the larger argument um, that um, that sort of the old Cold War threat has been replaced by new threats, which are globalized. And, and this is something that Fischer, Schröder and so on keep, kept saying um, uh, was uh, we cannot sit this out. Germany is not an island and um, these threats will come to us even if we try to stay out of it um, and they cannot be deterred. So we have no choice again um, but to intervene or sit back and wait for Germany to go up in flames because this stuff is coming to our shores anyway. Um, and of course, you, we can argue these things back and forth, right? Uh, and there's, it's a counterfactual saying what would have happened with Al-Qaeda um, uh, whether they would have attacked Germany or not, who knows? You cannot possibly know this. Maybe Ned LeBeau knows these things. Uh, he's the counterfactual uh, um, pope, um, but I don't. Um, and the thing is, and I'm not saying that the decision was wrong, right? Um, because uh, alliance solidarity is a valid argument. Um, but, but there were mixed arguments. And one of the arguments was a security argument. Uh, and that there's actually no choice. And we kind of, kind of this Zeitenwender argument sounds a bit like that, saying, um, listen, people, I don't really have a choice here, um, right? Uh, and and so, so this is basically reality forcing my hand, which makes it really easy, um, especially with such a controversial topic as the military and uh, and getting involved abroad somehow, uh, and the risk of you know escalation in these things, um, there it's really really comfortable to say, look, this is such a game changer, um, my hand has been forced. And mm -hmm. of course, um, there is one could have said that in 2014 as well, right? Um, so this whole argument about not having a choice now, but having had one in 2014. You know, obviously it's a larger scale, but it's not like Georg said, you must have been in a coma if <laughs> you, no, seriously, if you think that, if you're surprised by Putin, who is really, you know, uh, uh, misled you. I, I don't get it. Um, I really do not get it how one can seriously be surprised by the amount of aggression, yes. But by Putin being aggressive and being a dictator, how could you be surprised by that? That is just nonsense. Well, I, that I mean, that raises a question for me, and you both have have Georg, you alluded to that the that there is something significant in the Germans sending military capabilities to Ukraine to kill Russians. And Frank, your point here about uh, you know, how can Germans be surprised at Putin's bad behavior? Uh, I want to ask both of you, is there, and I think you raised this perhaps on Twitter, uh, Georg, but is there something about Russia in German political or strategic culture that, you know, lends a certain 
blindness, right? Mm -hmm. Americans have been warning the Germans for years about Nord Stream 2, which is now dead. But uh, multiple U.S. administrations going back at least to Obama Mm. warned the Germans that they were putting themselves at a strategically vulnerable position with respect to gas imports, right? So Americans and others have been sort of warning the German government, hey, you guys think about this stuff. You're do you really want to be in a position of vulnerability with the Russians? And it didn't seem to make much difference. So it seems like there's something, something going on there. Is there, there... I mean, psychologically, there is a very complex assemblage of, of sentiment toward Russia from, from the German perspective, right? I mean, German, Russian or Prussian, Russian historical ties go back for centuries. Uh, Catherine the Great was a Prussian uh, princess. It was uh, Russia and the Russian Empire under Tsar Alexander that essentially saved Prussia from complete dismemberment after its defeat against Napoleon in Jena and Auerstedt. Um, you know, Russia and, and Germany fought two very bloody wars in the 20th century against each other, both in the First World War and in the Second World War. Germans, Germany was substantial in triggering the Russian Revolution by dispatching Lenin through in the, in the, in the infamous sailed uh, train carriage. Um, so there is what some Germans call this Seelenverwandtschaft, right, a kindred of the souls that the the depth of the russian land russian literature whether that's um gogol or tolstoy or um you know um karamazov um dostoevsky and our you know german philosophy there is sort of like a cultural reciprocity uh, reciprocity here so that that is one thing where with some um, um, scholars in Germany call it Russenkitsch, sort of like a kitschy, schlocky idealization, um, rose-colored glasses view of Russia. The second one is is more recent. One is the historic guilt of Germans, German political establishment, and also average Germans of what the Wehrmacht, the German army, has done in the Soviet Union. And interestingly, this guilt seems to be focused on Russia predominantly and not what Timothy Snyder, for example, calls the bloodlands, right? That is Belarus, that is Ukraine, um, that is uh, the Baltics. It is the Soviet Union so it equalized with Russia. And that r- guilt that Germans feel for World War II and what the Wehrmacht has done seems almost exclusively directed at Russia, although actually the um, uh, proportionally, the greater losses of life in, in court, for example, by Ukrainians in Ukraine in, in Belarus. And the third element of this is lingering gratitude by Germany and Germans for the role that the Soviet Union under Gorbachev played in German reunification. That the Soviets under Gorbachev did not send out the tanks as they did in 53. That they allowed reunification to happen in the first place. That they allowed reunified Germany to join NATO. And uh, there was a genuine wish and really a genuine, um, I think, aspiration for Germany to repay that debt and to make everything happen to overcome the Cold War division. They were talking about our common house Europe. They were talking about security, not against Russia, but with Russia. And I think 
that was also genuinely admirable. I want Germany to have, you know, good and amicable relations with Russia, but not with a Russia under a Vladimir Putin that has increasingly taken a neo-imperialist, fascist, and militarist direction. And so I think the true character of the regime by Putin, his foreign policy, was essentially obscured by this genuine wish to heal these historic wounds through projects of economic engagement like the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. However, what we also have done by that is essentially we have completely overridden the genuine concerns and security concerns of the Estonians, the Latvians, the Lithuanians, the Ukrainians and the Poles, which all have said, don't you see who this guy is? He's a fascist thug. Your pipeline is not an economic project. You are essentially making us all hostages of this new imperialist uh, Russia. How can you say this is just an economic project? So unfortunately, in our sort of like moralist, idealist, you know, approach toward Russia, we have essentially kind of like imposed our own neo-colonial attitude towards Ukraine, for example. And again, you, you mentioned that letter in Emma and some of these left-wing intellectuals, they essentially see Ukraine as some kind of territorial bargaining chip, either in toto or at least in part, with whom we can buy a cold peace with Russia. And that's a new colonial attitude. And that is an attitude that is also completely is blind to the values that Ukraine defends, national sovereignty, territorial integrity, the right to exist, the right to statehood and nationhood is essentially reproducing Kremlin propaganda and Kremlin narrative. And here I have a massive problem with our past, in particular SPD-led, but also CDU-supported and Merkel-supported approach vis-a-vis -vis Russia. And I think there we really need to like stop idealizing uh, Russia in, in any way, shape or form. I mean, it's, it's interesting, right, that the... You pointed out that German desire for economic, to use economic tools to, to repair uh, or, or address past harms overrode concerns of societies and states that were also harmed by Germany in the 20th century, right? Poland was dismembered by the, both the Soviets and the Germans in the run-up to World War II, or et cetera, et cetera, right? So um, that's... I think that's an interesting point that we don't see actually occur at all in the U.S. discussions about all of this. It's sort of like, what's the what's the German fascination with Russia? But also missing is, what's why is Germany ignoring these other societies? If this cult guilt complex is driving German uh, kind of popular uh, understandings of the relationship with Russia as well as policy, why not these other uh, societies. Yeah, Frank, go uh, ahead. And if I uh, might add one minor point, I agree with, with, with what Georg said, um, uh, including the, the harsh condemnation uh, of um, some comments uh, uh, and, and, and how paternalistic the whole um, policy stance uh, is by some people. Um, but what I wanted to point out also is that I think this is also a point where um, some sort of general FPA attitude would help um, by focusing also on individuals, right? Um, because um, uh, in addition to what Georg said, I think what also matters is that kind of cool uh, 
got along with Yeltsin and specifically Schröder got very, very, and still does, very well along with Putin. Um, and that certainly clouds his view um, of Russia and Putin as a leader, right? Um, they adopted, uh, uh, Schröder and his wife adopted a Russian child. Um, they were guests uh, um, uh, on a Christmas party by Putin and they've been friends for a long time. And Putin basically immediately after Schröder was not a chancellor anymore, uh, like pushed him in a leadership position, I think at Gazprom, maybe Rosneft, I don't know, one of these places, um, right? And, um, and so this is, um, I think that two points with respect to Schröder. One, I think he is not exactly the principal type uh, in terms of moral principles that he sticks to, um, right? Um, because otherwise already his domestic uh, policy in terms of hard sphere, this sort of um, uh, social security that is very neoliberal, very cut down, um, I would say rather inhumane, is not exactly what you would expect from the social democrats, but Schröder pushed it through, so very, very neoliberal. Um, and, and we kind of see um, the same thing uh, happening after he was not chancellor anymore, that he was looking out for number one, um, even if that sounds a little polemic, right? But I, this is at least the way it seems to me. I can't read his mind, but it seems like that. He's come out and said he's no apologies, no regrets. Yeah, yeah. Mia Kultas are not his yeah. thing. That's what he if said. You, if you know Gerhard Schröder, he is probably yeah. also the last politician that you would actually buy a Mia Kulpa from. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's kind of like Trumpian in that way that he would like rather double down than ever apologize for anything. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and, and so they have a, him and uh, Putin have a bromance. Um, and that certainly is a big chunk of what's been going on between 1998 uh, and 2005 uh, while Schröder was in charge. Um, and, and afterwards, Merkel happened. And Merkel's leadership style kind of seems to be, um, I'm doing ad admin work here um, and, and I'm keeping things going. I'm not changing anything ever unless there's a tsunami and uh, a nuclear plant blowing up um, <laughs> or something equivalent, um, right? I'm being polemic, obviously, um, but uh, she was just, a very status quo. It's a little over the top, yeah. uh, only right yeah. because she's very status quo oriented, uh, and and we're seeing this in very very many policy policy fields, and that's right. It takes a war or something similar uh, for Merkel to change course, um, and I'm not even sure what would have happened if Merkel was still in charge. Who knows? Um, Right. Um, but I think this is important that the personal dimension to get back to the central point, I think is important to keep in mind here as well. I, I have a, another point that's come up, I think, on uh, discussions on Twitter. And I'll reverse the order here and start here with you, Frank. What's the response been in Germany, either in the political elites or in the public, to the kind of very strident criticisms by Zelensky of the German policy position, whereas Zelensky has, you know, very he, he's been he's been I think generally critical of the West for not providing enough quickly enough, right? But you know, he will say thank you to the United States. You've done you've been huge for us. The British, you've been huge for us. Please give us more, but you've been huge for us. 
But he's, Germany's coming for some really, German leadership is coming for some really strident criticism from him. And I just, I, it seems to me, I mean, it's an interesting political strategy on his part, but what's been the reception in Germany to that? Is, are the Germans like, yeah, we deserve this, or are the Germans saying, what an ungrateful jerk, yeah. or something else? To be honest, I don't know. Uh, because I haven't seen any polls. I don't know what the general public feels in regards to that. Um, the only thing I could say is that um, that the parts of the SPD that, that we already talked about that are very, very reluctant, very, very um, uh, tied to uh, diplomacy being the only way of solving things, um, that, that there's a, been a significant pushback from the SPD, not the SPD as such, but from parts of the SPD um, uh, directed towards Melnik, right? Um, that, that, that where basically you get the impression that um, Melnik being critical is worse than Putin, Putin actually starting a war of aggression, right? That's the feeling you sometimes get. Um, and... Um, Right, and and this is an, mainly an SPD thing, and obviously the Russia-friendly parties, the AfD and the Linke, um, but uh, within the let's say normal parties, the mainstream parties, it's mainly an SPD thing. But they seem he must have sort of somehow hit hit a, a nerve or something. Um, because the reaction is really, really over the top. Um, but I don't know exactly, I'm not aware of any polls uh, um, in regards to what what Germans as such think about. Is it is it getting media play in Germany? Are his criticism getting media play that you've seen? I, Are commentators sort of saying, well, I mean, I'm just, I, it seems to me it's an interesting... Right. If there's a German guilt dynamic, then then one could see it going in the direction of Zelensky is criticizing us, but we deserve this. Right. We should be more proactive. We should be more uh, energetic in terms of pushing aid to Ukraine. Or if you know, so I'm trying to I'm trying to make sense of these kind of competing dynamics within society in terms of where what is what is germany in europe what is germany in the world i mean um, the there, there's a couple of things at play here one is the different style of communication right german political rhetoric and public communication tends to be very stale very carefully nuanced very blandly worded the Ukrainian ambassador, Melnik, he does not communicate like that. He calls bullshit bullshit. I mean, I've been taken to sharing his tweets on Twitter with an Acme safe that falls from the sky because this is kind of like how he essentially takes aim. He just drops anvils like left, right and center. And he goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with people like Sigmar Gabriel, the former SPD chairman and foreign minister, Steinmeier, right? And quite frankly, he calls these guys out on their bullshit and says, we've been telling you this for years, and now we're looking at this conflagration that you and your policy of essentially appeasement of this Russian dictator has led us to. So please don't tell me how we can't operate the martyr infantry fighting vehicle. I need weapons. I want weapons now. Ideally, I have weapons yesterday. And a lot of the sort of German audience is like, oh, but we thought we're the good guys since World War II because we're always doing diplomacy and we're building gas pipelines. But now, 
how can he? And so there is a lot of that kind of like sort of like uh, uh, hyperventilating into collective uh, uh, sort of like napkins when Melnick is 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 addressing these these controversies, and because it kind of shatters the German self perception that we have of ourselves. Right? We learned the lessons from history. We used to be the Nazis. We used to be the bad guys in every Indiana Jones. But now we have reformed, and we are you know all about diplomacy, multilateralism, economic engagement. However, at the same time, there is an underbelly to that. And that is, for example, that we have completely sidelined the Eastern Europeans because we basically called those guys, well, you lived behind the Eastern Curtain, you were in the Warsaw Pact, we understand you kind of have these like irrational, you know, lingering fears about Russia, but really guys, you know, it's time to arrive in the 21st century. Well, it turns out the Eastern Europeans were right and we were actually wrong. And so this is shattering a lot of these sort of comfortable self-perceptions that we've had about ourselves, our role in international politics, our role in Europe. And Melnick does not address this with the elegant rapier. He is sort of like taking the battering ram. And that is ruffling a lot of feathers in Germany. But quite frankly, I think a lot of those feathers could do with some ruffling. And if I may cut in, I think Georg makes a really, really important point here about sort of this German benevolent self-perception. Right. And it is almost like Germany has its own version of exceptionalism. Um, you know, this this idea that that Germany is an enlightened society that has moved beyond great power politics, that has learned its lesson. And you can even see that sometimes in the discourse talking about allies. Right. Um, that, you know, uh, you've got this slight undertone that the Americans, they are allies and they're also a democracy, but they're kind of too militaristic and the French as well. And of course, there is something to it. Right. Um, but but it's it's like this. Germany is to some extent blinded toward its its own dark underbelly, right? Um, as Georg put it. And 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 this is really um this is what this has is, is sort of this paradoxical consequence that Germans blind themselves to the negative consequences of their own actions, right? Um, because if and we see this sorry I don't want to engage in US bashing, but we see it in the US where people, you know, you cannot become a politician without saying it's the greatest country in the world. And that that makes it really difficult to address injustices, to address um, things like uh, collateral damage, uh, which is a horrible euphemism itself, right? But things like that. And Germany, of course, has that itself um and 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 we don't address this and and uh, and part of this is is this is this very very positive um civilian self-image and that stands in the way of 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 um of seeing this seeing contradictory evidence um and now you know uh, as Georg is right these feathers don't just need to be ruffled. They need to be torn out um, because, because yeah, because they keep us from the bad stuff that is done in our name as Germans as well, right? This is this is a problem that Germany has as well, and where Germany has lied to itself for a very very long time, saying basically this this doesn't apply to us. Does that does that shape 
I've seen some indications that there's been a backlash in Germany toward kind of the overt Ukrainian nationalism, right? That the Ukrainians are, maybe this comes back to some of what we've talked about, but that Ukrainian nationalism hmm. is over the top or it's inappropriate or somehow um, indicates that that maybe there's a little bit of both sidism mm -hmm. going on, that the Russians are bad, but look at these ultra nationalist Ukrainians. Yep. There's something fishy going on there. Is that, is that part, does what you've talked about just now, Frank, is that feed into that a little bit or is it just a, is it just kind of Germans are just allergic to nationalism for obvious reasons that doesn't tie into this idea that Germans are this kind of virtuous state post-World War II? Well, it probably would. I'm not sure to what extent people buy into um, th this talk about uh, the Ukrainians being lots of Nazis, uh, basically, right? Because that's the Russian propaganda. Um, the Ukrainians are Nazis, and the, the Jewish uh, president of Ukraine is a Nazi, which is obviously complete utter nonsense, um, right? And this is, um, as far as I know, this is, completely over the top, obviously. Um, but I don't know to what extent people buy into this narrative. Um, so certainly if you watch Russia today, then you will buy into this. Um, but I'm not seeing, I'm seeing some, uh, some press reports addressing this topic, but I'm, I'm not, you know, maybe you see, see something else, but uh, I'm not seeing that this is gaining major traction um yeah. so so i i'm not sure to what extent this is this is really an issue outside of people who like conspiracy theories anyway i mean which, i wish there are some i i see that what aboutism by some intellectuals yeah that too yeah voices in the debate as a fighting retreat because they are seeing their discursive hegemony essentially collapse around them. 59% of the German population, according to public opinion polls, supports sending heavy weapons to Ukraine. Just the other day, the Bundestag, with overwhelming majority, um, passed a resolution supported by the CDU, CSU, the main opposition party, and the traffic light coalition, the FDP, the SPD, and the Greens to dispatch heavy weapons to Ukraine. Um, but these arguments are being uh, are being a voice. To so give you one example, Erich Wart, the uh, an ex-general who served in the chancellery and calls himself the former military advisor to the chancellor, Chancellor Merkel, which is a bit of hyperbolic. Um, also, I always say, well, military advisor to Merkel is kind of like having been the acting coach of Steven Seagal. I don't know how much bragging rights that really awards you. But in any case, um, Vard essentially says, yes, there's a war going on. It's terrible. Look what the, what the Americans have done in Iraq and Afghanistan. Hundreds of thousands of civilian uh, casualties as a result of the war on terror. And, you know, if there's a hospital being or civilian target being hit in Ukraine, that probably didn't come from, from Putin. I mean, that's what about is in Parks loss. Yep. Also, what, of course, what completely ignores here is that, yes, collateral damage to use that, you know, terrible euphemism, civilian casualties occurred in the war on terror. They were accepted, um, if you will, as a consequence of military action, but they were never the primary target. The primary target was always 
insurgents and you know terrorist groups and terrorist organizations so yes sometimes i bombed a wedding party uh, to uh, formulate uh, formulate it here a bit loosely but when i did i didn't deliberately target it it was essentially an accident or it occurred because the actual target was right next door so there is this kind of apologism going on for russian imperialism russian fascism russian militarism but I really think and see these voices lose ground. And we can also see that in the policy shift, right? Germany has now announced we're going to send the Gepard self-propelled anti-aircraft guns. In my opinion, it's it's a matter of weeks, maybe even days, until we announce that we're sending more. Today I saw an, a report in the Welt that Germany is talking with the Dutch and the Italians that we're going to put a package together with Panzerhaubitze 2000 155mm howitzers to dispatch this because all of our political arguments against sending heavy weapons have essentially collapsed the, the moment we we went with the Gepard. So um, I see the Emma letter, people like that, I see this as a post-1968 particular brand and strand of left-wing pacifism in Germany that is oftentimes also very overtly tinged in anti-Americanism because it all sprung up against in protest against the Vietnam War and the presence of U.S. nuclear weapons in Germany in the 1980s, like the Pershing, for example. And there is essentially an, a, a cognitive dissonance where they almost cannot identify the villain as Russia, the enemy as Russia, because it is only ever Washington and American imperialism, NATO, who has the enemy. And these people now, like the SPD looks at the collapse of its energy and Russia policy, these people are looking at the collapse of their worldview in front of them, where a German society and a German government that essentially leaves them behind to quote Trotsky in the dustbin of history. Where do you think Germany goes from here? Um, do you continue to see evolution in terms of this um, uh, Zeitenwander, or do you do you see kind of uh, a pushback from status quo forces in the SPD or whatever? Does Germany reconstitute itself in NATO as the the backbone again, or Europe? What? I obviously our crystal balls are all very hazy, but I would be interested to hear what where what direction you think German foreign and security policy plays out uh, in the context of this conflict. Obviously, there's something happening, um, uh, but I am not yet sure what it means. It's probably, I mean, it's really difficult, I think, for anybody to say where this is going to go. Um, even if we don't um, carry our very serious academic hats and engage in some guesswork, it's uh, it's very difficult. Um, I, on a very general level, in terms of security policy, I think there will there will not be something like um, uh, a not splitting or something like that, right? I don't think um, that this is going to happen. Um, I think that. Um, there will continue to be debates. There will be continue to be discursive struggles back and forth. Um, this certainly says what's happening now says nothing about out of area operations, in my opinion. I think nothing changed there. Nothing, um, and um, and as far as um, becoming the backbone of NATO, I'm skeptical. 
simply for financial reasons and because this um because if you look at the numbers and i'm not a numbers guy i'm not sort of a policy analyst right i'm more on the theory side but um the stuff that i've um heard uh, podcasts radio what i've read is that a lot of the the this this um this extra fund will be eaten up um and there's no long-term plan that i'm aware of unless something changed uh recently and and this is a problem right um i'm not i I'm, I'm, I still have to see whether this changes. And even if, assuming the best case, that Germany really puts the 2% goal uh, in its budget um, indefinitely, um, then most of it will still be eaten up by personnel costs, um, uh, by maintenance costs, by uh, everything they, they still need, running costs, right? Uh, and there will be, and they have, I, I, I think they have a huge need for investment in new uh, technology, new weapon system, these kinds of things. And I, so far, I'm not, I'm not seeing where the money is supposed to come from that is, that will actually cover that sufficiently. So best thing that's going to happen is that there will be, my guess, right, um, that there will be a Bundeswehr that is actually, um, in reality reflects what it is on paper because right now what we have is basically you know tank battalions uh, that lend each other their tanks uh, so they can participate in maneuvers and stuff um, and they have what georg i think said that in some other context that within like uh, a couple of days all the ammunition would be gone uh, and things like that right and that's that those are huge uh, I think Georg, you had a thread on that. Uh, there was, there's a huge need for investment, uh, and that will eat up everything um, uh, of the fund they they are now investing. Uh, and I'm not seeing any major changes. And also the promise, and then I'm going to stop, is sort of um, the the administration in charge of acquisitions is like a, a clusterfuck. Um, they, it's it's very bureaucratic, even for German standards, uh, and 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 that tends to make everything way way more expensive, and take way longer acquisitions in these things. Um, probably Gil can say a lot more about that. So there's a lot of uh, moving parts, a lot of insecurities, variables, uh, and a lot of holes still in this Zeitenwende thing that sounds very nice, but. Not sure how it's going to manifest. Before we before we switch to Georg, do you think the German relationship with Russia and the former Soviet or or communist bloc states like Ukraine will change as a result of this? I think it already has. Um, I think that much is clear. Um, that uh, aside from a from the AFD and the Linke and parts of the SPD um, that there, there's no one really arguing that you can do business as usual. Um, and and Putin hasn't stopped. So uh, if he had stopped immediately, maybe there would have been a way back uh, for everybody to feel comfortable again, you know, ontological security, all that stuff. Um, but, but there is no way there. And the longer this goes, um, 
the more people will have to reorient themselves and in discursive language identify with discourses that provide sort of a grand narrative and make them feel secure and uh, all set again, right? Um, and that's not going to be, you know, back back to usual. Um, so, and this war is going to drag on for months, maybe years, who knows? Um, and uh, and as long as this goes on, there's no way back to, well, Putin isn't that bad. So I think that ship has sailed. But I might be wrong. Great. Great. George. Yeah, I think when it comes to the consequence of the excitement and this turnaround, um, cautious optimism. Germany will never be the international actor that acts the fastest or the boldest because the norm is coalition governments, which means that you already have to negotiate with at least two, maybe even three parties within government. We don't have a central body for the planning and coordination and implementation of a national security strategy. We don't have a national security council, right? So that kind of like long-term strategic planning is pretty much not happening in Germany because we have the ressort principle. Every ministry is pretty much independently administrative. Uh, I think for the first time now, we're, we're developing a national security strategy ever for example. But on the military side, and there I'm 100% in agreement with, with what Frank said, we're going to see a Bundeswehr that is no longer a hollow force, but a credible force for deterrence. So we're not recreating the you know German military juggernaut of Prussia, Imperial Germany, or God forbid the Wehrmacht, but we're going to have a military that can actually fulfill its commitments toward NATO. You know, when we talk about our 100 billion euro defense budget, 20 billion of that is just replenishing ammunition stocks from everything from tank and artillery shells to surface to air missiles to bombs to everything in the arsenal. Because at the moment, we're literally running out after 72 hours of serious fighting. 5 billion is new heavy lift uh, helicopters when our model is from the 70s. Another you know, couple of billion, uh, 15 billion is to replace our aging fleet of the NATO fighter bombers also from uh, the 70s. So that's, uh, you know, a third of that's already gone. Then the rest is digital radios, waterproof jackets, thermal underwear, like really, you know, basic stuff, essentially. And then we haven't even talked about the really big whoppers, which is the future air combat system and the major ground combat system, where we're basically developing a new tank and a new fighter jet together with drones with France. That is, you know, hundreds of billions of euros in development cost over the coming over the coming decades. So the plan basically is for Germany to field three army divisions to have 15 warships and uh, to be able to fly I think like something like 200 sorties of air operations of all of all kinds. That in itself is not so much military hegemony on the continent but it is a credible element where Germany provides for territorial defense. And interestingly, I think it will rather mean that Germany will probably not be the first to say, oh, if there's another situation like in ISIS or in Mali, we're going to send, you know, our planes to help you in a strike mission or a bombing mission, because this idea of, oh, we're just a defense army, we're just a territorial defense army and deterrence army actually would mean kind of like sort of like closing this chapter of military interventions that were neither politically nor societally ever very popular in Germany. So we might actually see even a less internationally military engaged Germany and one that sort of focuses on its traditional role as the leading land power in Europe vis-a-vis -vis Russia 
let's say, right? So I don't necessarily need see more German foreign policy activism, but I see one that has credible military power to underwrite its overarching strategic um, target goal and aim, which is maintain the European Union and European unity and maintain the transatlantic um, alliance. And those for me would be the most likely outcomes. Well, thank you very much to both of you. This I found this to be extremely enlightening, and I think our listeners will too. So I really appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. That's pretty perfect, actually. I think that's the best American... Right off the bat, pronunciation of my name I've ever heard. <laughs>